I am so glad to be here at the Pink Floyd Hour, <laughs> talking about Pink Floyd. That was what I was told we were here to talk about today. Our long-lost brother-in-arms said he would come back and do a recording with us on one condition. <laughs> if we changed the topic to Pink Floyd. So, Charles, I would love to hear from you about Pink Floyd. Now, I will confess right up front, Pink Floyd is one of those bands for me that like everybody loves that I don't get. Right? I think maybe people have bands like that where they're, they're considered geniuses by many, um, but for whatever reason, you just don't connect with them the way that other people seem to. Pink Floyd is a band like that for me personally. I've never really had that connection that I know many others feel as the legends that uh, they are regarded to be. Um, tell me about how Pink Floyd impacts you on a daily basis. Hunter, David... Before I get into the Pink Floyd, I just wanted to thank you guys for your patience as I was off in Never Neverland in Zambia collecting butterflies or whatever it was. Uh, I love you guys, and thanks for allowing me a little bit of a break. It really meant a lot. So, And as part of my trip, I, yeah, I, br- I brought back some stuff for you guys. Dave? Ooh. This is is uh, Indege Kokolombo. He is the head of gaming studies from Virunga University. Mm. For you. Okay. It's a shrunken head. Oh my. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I ho- it's not cursed, and I hope you wear it well. Yeah, freaks, that stuff freaks me out. Okay. Well, he's a foremost. That, that texture of- feels so real. He's a, he's the foremost head of gaming studies. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, <laughs> and and Hunter, I brought you this custom-made carrying case for your iPhone six, made from oh my the goodness. indigenous farfanula tree, and it's it's <laughs> renewable resource, and it comes with an SDK and an API for you to. <laughs> Basically, you never need to touch your phone ever again. It's just going to transmit organically into your blood screen stream. So, uh, just just a couple that's, a token of my. I am. I'm thrilled. First, I got to say thank you. I say I'm thrilled, but most of all, um, the fact that it's you know it's it's a renewable resource. I don't have to feel <laughs> guilty about uh, ruining the planet. That's true. That's that's really the, the pinnacle of this whole thing for me. So, uh, do so, you want to talk about Pink Floyd? I no, 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 I do. Yeah. I definitely do want to, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but, uh, you know, when I was younger, I didn't like Pink Floyd either. I didn't get it. You know, it was just kind of long and spacey and whatever. You know, I liked rock and roll a little more squared edges and, and uh, a little louder. And when I was in college, the first year of college was the late 80s, 86, 87, and that was the year that Pink Floyd kind of came back to life after the Roger Waters split. And I used to listen to the records with my roommates. They just put it on, and we'd get stoned, and we'd listen to it. And, you know, it didn't take, it took maybe 10 years later where I finally got it. And then maybe in the last 10 years, it, uh, Pink Floyd just really got into my bloodstream. It was after I went to see David Gilmore live uh, in 2006, I think it was, that I just, I was converted on the spot. Uh, he's such a great musician, great guitar player, and the songs are pretty fantastic. But the reason why I mentioned Pink Floyd is uh, a week ago, they put out an album, which 
comes from recordings that were made in 1993. As they were supposed to be a part of a two-record set with The Division Bell, which is the last studio album they made. In the interim between recording that and now, uh, the keyboard player Richard Wright passed away. So they took these old recordings uh, that they were going to make an atmospheric instrumental album, and they fashioned it into a completely new uh, experimental soundscape that is probably the most emotional for something that's mostly wordless. It's the most emotional and self-referential of anything they've ever done. Uh, The album tells an audio story without words of, if you listen to it closely, it's just the history of Pink Floyd. You know, there's all these references and it's all in chronological order. All these little bits of sounds that you might recognize from 1968 to Dark Side of the Moon to uh, Metal to all these little things, and it tells a chronological story of, of the history of Pink Floyd up until the death of Richard Wright. And it's kind of like a Wish You Were Here album for Rick Wright. And Wish You Were Here, of course, was, was like a love album that they wrote for uh, the original singer, Sid Barrett, who uh, basically lost his mind. So they wrote that album, Wish You Were Here, was that like, we wish you were here, but he couldn't because he became mentally unstable. So... This is kind of like these guys now sending their love letter to their lost comrade. Uh, and it's truly a remarkable and beautiful, beautiful album. And and I can't recommend it high enough. So there's my sure bet. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you for humoring me. <laughs> are, you, are you leaving now? Yeah, I'm done. That's it. That's all I wanted to say. I got nothing else to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um. Dave, are you? I don't want to. We are going to talk about casino topics here, I promise. But um, Dave, are you a Pink Floyd fan? Like you, I've never really gotten into them. So I'd have to say, I guess I'm an agnostic. I've just never really, never connected. That surprises me. There's a lot of stuff I haven't connected with that I probably should have. But, There's yeah. property in Atlantic City that's calling your name. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I could be the dean of uh, high stakes table gaming. You never know what might what may pass. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's uh, let's dump into some stuff here. Um, this is typically where we would start off with some announcements. I don't think that we have any announcements unless um, Dave, you unless there's anything happening in Bookland that you wanted to to announce. But I, other than saying thank you to folks for attending uh, Vimp last month, I don't think that there's any announcements we currently have in the hopper. No, I don't have anything. Okay, good. Good, we are announcement-free. Um, <laughs> we do have, however, we do have uh, a, a reader question. So uh, we once, in, once ever in a blue moon, uh, somebody will write in and ask us a question. And um, so we, do, we got one here today from Kevin. I'm going to read this question. I think I know the answer, but um, it's interesting that... Uh, it came up when it did because it's a topic that reappeared recently after many years of dormancy. So we'll throw it out there and see what we think. Here's the question. I read a weird claim in a Yelp review of Win Las Vegas. Now, I'm sure that in and of itself is not that uncommon. Uh, that there was a contingency 
in the sale of the Desert Inn to Steve Wynn that the golf course must stay a golf course, and that's why a big chunk of fairly prime real estate isn't being put to more use in a traditional Vegas way. At first blush, it doesn't seem like something Steve would ever agree to, but I can't imagine the revenue per square foot is very high for a golf course, especially when constant maintenance and weather extremes are factored in. So it doesn't seem too far-fetched to me in explaining why it still exists. I googled around, but I couldn't find anything, so I figured you guys would be the ones to ask. Any truth to this? Long-time listener, always learn something new. Thanks. Kevin. Um, so I will, uh, of course, let my my uh, co-host here opine. My understanding is that that claim is not correct, that uh, the folks at Wynn are free to do whatever they want with the land that they bought. Um, though uh, the reason it hasn't been developed is just that the economics of building more Vegas resorts hasn't made sense. There were discussed plans and talk, talk at least, about uh, putting stuff on that property that uh, never came to fruition as the economy imploded. Um, it's interesting. Steve Wynn recently was on the record saying that as long as he's alive, it will not be developed. Uh, but the impression I got is just that he's happy with what it is. And so that that's the sort of line behind that. And also... I if some amazing opportunity came along, I think eating that quote would be the easiest thing he'd ever done. Um, so, <laughs> do, am I on the right track here, or have I have I uh, have I messed this one up? I have no idea. I have never heard that story before. But you know, my my thought is is that if there were a contingency, there would be certainly be some kind of statute of limitations and. Steve wouldn't abide by it anyway. Otherwise, he doesn't own the property. And he's not going to buy anything that he's not going to completely own and have the freedom to to uh, fully develop however he he wishes. And I agree with, with, with him. He shouldn't develop it. And when there was the talk of that underwater convention center or whatever the hell he was going to put in the in the fairway back there, I thought that was a really bad idea. He's better off just buying another parcel straight to the – closer to the curb. There's plenty of property around, so yeah. There's not much reason to to develop go. that now or for the foreseeable future, just because there's not really a lot of call for condos and that sort of thing. So you know, is he going to jam another ten thousand hotel rooms on there? You know, you could build them. Could he run them in a wind type style? I would say probably not. I would say there's probably a limit of how many rooms he can they can physically run and keep up their standards. And I don't know whether you would want to jeopardize that by just developing that land. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, Kevin, thank you for writing in with your question. We always welcome questions from people out there. We hope we answered it in a way that makes sense to you. All right. Let's talk some topics. There's been uh, a lot of interesting stuff that's happened in the past few weeks since our last show was a live show, which uh, was a little bit on different gaming industry topics as well. But um, now we will dig into some of the stuff that uh, that's happened in the last few weeks. So um, I have a list of some interesting stuff. I uh, was thinking to start off with something uh, which may not require all that much discussion, but, uh, you know, on this show, we've talked a lot about what's happening in Massachusetts. And um, so when we last met, uh, the folks at Wynn had won a concession, but that was before the voters in the state had an opportunity to uh, perhaps um, take away all of the gambling that is 
what was going to be enacted. So the voters spoke, and the casinos won, and they will be uh, happening, at least as of today. They're still happening. I saw some giant fake checks from uh, folks like Wynn and the NGM paying their concession fees. So, you know, the balls are, are rolling there. Um, so I don't know if there's much to discuss on the Massachusetts front. I did see one interesting story about um, their gaming commission and their cons- that what they're considering regarding problem gaming. So this is in the news, I think, today or yesterday. So the story that uh, that I read indicated that they were considering a program where people that gambled in those casinos would be sort of pre-enrolled in one of those uh, when the fun stops type programs and would have to opt out instead of opt in, which is the way it is in many other states like Nevada, etc. Uh, and of course, the casino companies are not excited about that idea because they, they, I think, they were quoted saying something like it sounded cumbersome and confusing. Um, the commission did not vote on whether to enact this, so it's not like they're moving full steam ahead. Uh, but I thought it was an interesting idea. Clearly, um, you know, new jurisdictions are trying to mitigate the negative or perceived negative effects of bringing in gambling, and they're looking for ways to do that. And I'm sure, you know, something like this seems like a really aggressive action that probably makes uh, the people that live in that area that oppose this kind of thing happy. Um, Dave, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have any sense of the historical context of this, is this something that's done in other jurisdictions? That It sounds pretty heavy-handed to me. Well, you had betting limits in a lot of states in the riverboat years, and Colorado, I think, had a $5 hand betting limit. South Dakota, I think, did too. Missouri had a total session betting limit. I think you could only lose $500 every two hours. <laughs> so that stuff tended to keep the play pretty small. And as of today, I'm pretty sure all of those limitations are gone. So ultimately, they didn't really last anyway. And right. I guess there's two ways of looking at it. You know, I know I follow some responsible gaming people on Twitter, and the, the one way of looking at it is saying, hey, this is something innovative. We should try it. We should experiment. The other way is saying that, well, if you're in the gaming industry, you've got this gaming commission that has people that don't have a lot of experience in gaming and are going to be ruling on something that would really affect the conduct of gaming. So, uh, you know, I could see it potentially being kind of divisive. You know, the the and I couldn't tell whose spokesman was saying what or which licensee was uh, was putting forth which statement, but... It sounded like the casino folks were saying, like, hey, look, why don't we run these places for a couple of years and see how things go, see how big of a problem we have. And that's easy for them to say, right? But at the same time, it does seem, it does seem prudent to factor in some actual data when making these sorts of decisions. Uh, all right. Massachusetts. We can go visit uh, Win Win Mass in uh, 2017 or thereabouts. Um. Okay, let's uh, zoom down the coast here, stay stay on the eastern seaboard, and we will go to Dave's hometown of Atlantic City. Um, you know, I, we have we sort of had a, a meta conversation about this a while ago, about how it seems like all we ever do is talk about bad things that are happening there. Um, and unfortunately, I think the two things I have written down probably also fall into that bucket. But um, hopefully we can find a, a silver lining here. Um, the two things that I want to mention are regarding one Revel and two the Taj. Um, why don't we start with Revel? Uh, last time we tuned in, Revel was being uh, purchased in bankruptcy court and was uh, going to be reopened 
it seems like that plan has been disrupted. What, Dave, what's going on with Revel? Well, it looks like the Brookfield group that was going to buy the place has withdrawn their bid to buy the place. So that means who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. I guess the stated reason was some kind of disagreement with some of the bondholders over bonds held for, I think, one of the sort of sub-properties, the the power plant there. Um, It seems like a sort of minor quibble in what is a large overall deal. It seems like that could be resolved, but perhaps not. Interesting. Seems yeah. like Revel kind of signed a pretty big contract with the folks who bailed them out for for the uh, for the power plant, and there's guarantees of a lot a lot of money for them to make on this, and they put in a lot of money to to build it. So it could be hardball negotiations. It could be you know that these guys didn't do their due diligence beforehand, or they bid just to to get the property and hope they could you know shake the flies off later on, but. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to go well. I I remember – you guys can see if your members re- jive with this. When the Aladdin was going through its bankruptcy, I remember the power plant thing there also being an issue because they had like sold it off into a separate company and made some deals with the local utility. And it was like this big expensive time bomb that uh, was problematic as they were trying to offload the place to uh, – to what uh, Caesar's Palace folks? Um, interesting thing. So, but Dave, so what, what's the status now? Right, the the place is not going to be sold. Is the bankruptcy can are can other bidders come in and um, and make a bid? That's what it looks like. You know, I'm guessing they go back to bankruptcy court, but who knows? Unless somebody else shows up and says I'm going to buy it, it's a definitely a pretty chaotic situation. Yeah, it's unfortunate, especially given that they seem like they had something in place and now having to go back to the drawing board. I mean, I guess it's it's possible that things could work out even better, but uh, not what folks that were hoping to go back to work wanted to hear, I'm sure. Um, just down the street, Taj Mahal, uh, there have they have talked about potentially closing that property, which to me is, in one hand, perhaps not unexpected, but also shocking, um, just because I feel that's such an iconic property when you think of Atlantic City for so many years, whether it was you know, the top performer or not, um, it, it is what I think of when I think of Atlantic City, when I see sort of play back in my mind uh, shots of the Atlantic City boardwalk from the, the you know, the 90s. I, I think of the Taj. I, it's sort of, to me, it would be like if, if the Mirage was shutting down in Las Vegas. Now, I, I wouldn't say that they're comparable in many ways, but it, to me, that's sort, that's sort of how I see it. Obviously, Dave, you worked there. Um, what's this, how likely is this shutdown? Do you have any sense? And what does this mean for the city? No, I don't. It would be pretty terrible because that would totally leave resorts kind of the last one standing out of these four properties at that end of the boardwalk. So Revel's gone, Showboat's gone, although I guess Showboat's going to become a branch of Stockton, well, Stockton College in New Jersey, which used to be called Stockton State College. So Revel's going to have a Stockton campus. I mean, yeah, Showboat's going to have the Stockton campus. Taj, yeah, if that closed, that would be pretty bad. That would be really, really bad. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, not only are we talking about, of course, people's jobs, but a, a really large property, iconic, that is sh- shuttered and shut down. I mean, Chuck, you, in all of your visits to Atlantic City, can you imagine it without the Taj? Absolutely not. It's you know, when I was coming up as a kid, teenager, 
you know, the Taj Mahal was the thing. You couldn't go a day without seeing uh, Donald Trump on Live at Five with Sue Simmons and Chuck Scarborough yapping about his hyping up his property. You know, it was the biggest, hugest thing. The biggest, biggest, most massivest, opulent casino ever. And it was probably the biggest, craziest one I'd ever been into in my life at that at that stage, for sure. It's like, this thing's amazing. The thought that it's going to close? Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't fathom it. I really can't fathom it. But, you know, as I know you guys, I know, Dave, you probably read it, and I'm sure, Hunter, you read it too, that the New Yorker article about the America's casino saturation problem, it lays out the argument really, really clearly why. Why all these properties are closing? Because there's a casino on every block at this point. Every state, every neighborhood, every city. Well, I'm I'm exaggerating, but something's going to have to give. And Atlantic City, much like Reno five years ago, five seven years ago, is now fractured. I just, you know, I, I it, it may be that market forces have shifted and there just isn't enough customer volume to support the number of properties that were open and operating right that that may be the case yeah. it's just it's just so unfortunate that though that i'm trying to imagine how the boardwalk is going to look when half of the place is dark right i mean that's just it sends all kinds of bad signals uh, i it would be amazing if there was some way to mitigate that now the closure uh is Something that our everyone's good friend Carl Icahn is trying to uh, is trying to push through. I mean, it doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to shut the doors for good, right? I, they're they're in it to make money, and if they found a way that they could do so, they would do so, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, one other thing, casinos. I don't think, and this was also sort of mentioned in that New York New Yorker article, is that the scale of the things that they're building is kind of the problem. You know, if they, the casinos on this scale with all those rooms and all those restaurants and stuff, that's not going to happen anymore. With so many casinos all over the place, they're all going to have to be built a little bit smaller to cut the expenses down because you're not going to get as gigantic of a, uh, of a draw because there's so much competition. So right. in some ways, the math of the casino resort without the scale... It needs to be completely rethought. You don't have thousands and thousands of people plunking money in the slot machines, you know. So it's a less thing. So it's a tighter margin. You got to have smaller rooms, smaller towers, less glitz and less glamour. And at that point, why bother? Mm. <laughs> and they mentioned that that the uh, the um, the MGM Springfield, right? As as as, uh, as an example of this, they're building an eight hundred million dollar casino complex which is in Springfield which is not you know a massive city but are places like that why you started your website I mean those places aren't inspiring or awe inducing in any way the small places yeah no exactly that's, that's the point it's like people are not going to want to go because they're not that big but you're not going to be able to get them to be sustainable because they're building at a scale that maybe the surrounding area doesn't necessarily support. Right. I know they, they've probably done their math and, and the studies and all that stuff, but it's a fascinating idea. Math, bah. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Dave, I mean, as a former employee, how does this make you feel? You know, a little, not, I want to say betrayed, but a little bit betrayed, just because you have that, you think these places are going to be around forever. You know, it's this huge organization, this huge building, and I think you just have the idea that it's always going to be there, it's never going to go away, and then, hey, it might go away. And all these other places have closed, too. You know, uh, Showboat. And it's just kind of, I don't know, very depressing. Yeah, it's we, honestly really depressing. Makes it very hard to to write in to kind of write about the gaming industry in the same way when you see it just totally contract like that in your hometown. Yeah. Right. When we had Roger for our last show, he talked a little bit about the change in political leadership in the city of Atlantic City, specifically the mayor uh there and Folks, you know, seeing him as uh, a new hope. Any sense of how the vibes are in, in? In I mean, it's been a city that for a long time, the sort of the politicos there have not been super well regarded, right? So, uh, are we still feeling like, um, like at least everybody's rowing in the same direction in the mayor's office? Yeah, I mean that's that's true, but. You know, they're really up against something here, and you can't really, you know, the mayor can't just issue an edict and make the tide go out when the tide is coming in. Right. You, you've got to realize, like Chuck said, those market forces that are working. And to me, you want you want to start to move away from gaming and gaming-related tourism, if you're even going to call it tourism. You know, my argument's always been the people going to Atlantic City casinos aren't tourists. They're basically commuting. And yeah. now there's a branch office that opened up right near them that they can go to so they don't have to commute. So you need to find tourists to go there. And that takes a lot of money, and there's not really a blueprint for that. So it's difficult. And yeah. my, uncle, my uncle is uh, he's a card counter. He's a professional card counter. He lives in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And for uh, 30 years or so, he uh, was commuting to... Atlantic City to go count cards. They knew he was counting cards. He had a little posse, a bunch of guys. They didn't really push the bets too hard. But he stopped going. Now he goes to the to the other joints. So he doesn't why he doesn't go to Atlantic City anymore. He'd rather go to Pennsylvania. Because to him, a card game is a card game. He doesn't card care. game is a card game. Yep, and it's so scarce in Atlantic City now that he'd right. rather go there. Sorry. What and it's it's also hysterical. Just just a la- little thing. How the the mayor of Atlantic City's name is is Don Guardian. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, Don Guardian. Yeah, doing a good <laughs> job. <laughs> he's doing his best. You know, yeah. he's coming into it kind of late. The cool thing is that the something the chief of finance or something or some kind of fiscal officer. His name is Jack Potts. <laughs> that's so awesome Don wow. Guardian and Jack Potts yeah that's a good so, one yeah, I like that. yeah but you know I mean they were trying to do their best with a very they've been dealt a really bad hand and you don't take decades of hey you know we maybe we should diversify no why bother we've got so many quarter slot players coming in it's not going to matter well now you've got casinos in Connecticut oh no they'll still come it doesn't really matter and that's always been the attitude there that, that people are going to come and now we're seeing that they're not so they kind of needed to be doing a lot of the stuff for the past 30 years, and they haven't, and that's why it's problematic now. Right. People will come, Ray. People yeah. will come. 
uh, I sort of invoked the Mirage uh, at the top of this conversation. The Mirage is turning, I think, 25 this year. Um, icon, Vegas icon, clearly. What, it, let's sort of play, uh, play a little game here for just a moment. What would have to happen? What kind of forces would have to conspire for Las Vegas to end up in a situation like this where a place like the Mirage had to close? Is that, is that something that you could even see on the horizon given, given what's happening in the world? Oh, yeah. Okay, so let me tell you a couple things. Number one, Chinese government clamps down and says no visas for people who want to go to the U.S. So no Chinese citizens are going to travel to the U.S. We don't want to do that. Um, Number two, you can throw in some kind of SARS-type thing that disrupts air travel for a year or two. You know, maybe just something that, that shakes that up. Number three, another financial crisis in the U.S., It's something that drives away, so business travel starts to fall. You know, they're 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 on a it's a, it's a thinner knife edge than you think. And Steve Wynn, one of the most insightful things that I've ever heard him say is that throughout the history of Las Vegas, and any given day, half of the casinos in the Strip were this close to going bankrupt. Hmm. He just said that's the nature of it. And he said that a while ago. I don't know if that's still his view. I kind of suspect it is because the last time I talked to him, which was a while ago, he was kind of pessimistic and saying, well, look, you know, the, all these companies, himself included, have lost so much inequity that they're, and they're never going to get it back. You know, that was right. kind of just of what he's saying. So it's kind of, it's a, you know, we're a lot close. It's, it's a lot more fragile than people think is what I'm saying. So it's not totally inconceivable that yeah. that could happen. And, you know, there's a lot of times when it could have happened. If you look at the recession, if Macau closes down in 2000. Nine, then you know LVS clearly right goes in the tank, and a lot of other you know, and then probably when an MGM might have followed them. So it's dependent on a lot of a lot of other things. So yeah, I think it could happen. There's no reason why it couldn't. This is the reason why the LVCVA spends so much money marketing the city to make sure that this never happens. Right, right. Just uh, yeah, Chuck. I've got another two things, three things. Caesars goes bankrupt, and they have to break the property up in an ugly, disgusting way. That's well, wait, so yeah, so let's let's hold the Caesars stuff because we're definitely going right. to talk about them. My other one is Twitter goes down. If Twitter goes down, <laughs> then Las Vegas is going to stop. Absolutely. Uh, fair enough. Yeah, just I, just grown. It's not. Yeah, worth, yeah, yeah. You clearly didn't spend all your time away writing good jokes. <laughs> Um, sorry, I had to just, ha- I couldn't resist. So, uh, Please, so before you we, I'm your pin cushion <laughs> before we close this out, um, I'll play everyone's favorite game. What would MGM do? So let's say that MGM was faced with, uh, an economic disaster that f- basically they had to, uh, severely limit the amount of money that they were spending on a daily basis. Chuck, which property do you think that they would close first on the strip? Yeah. In Las Vegas. Oh boy. Hmm. Well, I think it'd be uh, Circus Circus would probably be the first one, and the other ones would all just drop down a tier. They'd all drop down quite a bunch, and they'd probably sell Mirage would be the next thing. I think it would be really hard to predict. I mean, obviously, we're making up fake scenarios, so we don't know exactly oh, yeah. what's going on. But you, it, if they were really hurting, they would want to. They they might be forced to go bigger than something like than just a circus. I could see a property like the Mirage actually being one that doesn't necessarily have to exist. If they had to, sh- I mean, for the same reasons that you could imagine them selling it, 
if they had to sort of shed part of their portfolio, it's got overlap with some of the other stuff that they already have. It wasn't all that long ago that that property was on the market, you know. Right. Ruffin was talking about it all the time. Not really, what, three years ago, maybe? You know, they've MGM's done a great job, and the guys have done a fabulous job pulling themselves out of the hole for the most part, but... You know that obviously would be the first one to go, and then they've shed off the uh, the Boulder property and uh, the one in Gene too. So I think they might get rid of some of the other properties out of town, and then the Mandalay Mile would probably start getting ripped apart too. So Dave, you have recently been promoted from your position as vice president of table game studies to C- CEO of MGM Resorts. If, if, faced, if faced with that same question, would, how would you trim back the fat? And we're going to move on to something more concrete and real. I'd focus on the core, building for the future, maintaining that land bank, as they like to call it. So the what I would call the core of their properties, which is everything from, from Bellagio down to Mandalay Bay, I would not want to touch anything there because yeah. that's where they've invested. You, you, your sunk costs there are so high. They just yeah. spent like $9 billion in city center. They're spending this huge amount of money on that arena. So you want to preserve that at all costs. So that is what you protect you. Anything else I would have to think would be expendable. So like Chuck said, first, you know, first I would say selling off some of the land that you don't have developed. So the rock in Rio thing, which you haven't really developed, sell that off, maybe selling off some of the South strip land that hasn't been developed. Maybe you do some kind of JV with somebody who wants to build something gaming or non-gaming on the parking lot in front of Mandalay, which was eventually going to be another casino resort there. So maybe you do that. You know, actually that's probably the first thing I do is I try to find somebody to open uh, universal studios, Las Vegas or something Mm. on some of the land they have that they're not built, you know, either the land across from Luxor or, you know, something like that. So number one, I tried to JV something and bring some more development. Number two is, yeah, you look at Circus Circus, they've closed the RV park for development. So, you know, I, you know, that's yeah. Circus Circus, then Mirage, but Mirage, I think it's such a good property that the value was so much more with people in it. You would be able to sell that before you had to close it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sounds right to me too. Um, Okay. So this actually, our crazy made-up scenario is a good segue to a real-life scenario where the folks at Caesars are basically going through this exercise, uh, if not completely analogous, um, not too dissimilar. So we have talked at length about the Caesars Entertainment and its various related companies and how for since their uh, leverage buyout back in 2008-ish or whenever that was, uh, they have been struggling to handle the massive amount of debt that they have piled up. Um, Over the past couple of months, the folks that are lending to them have gotten a little bit more anxious, it seems, about getting paid back. Uh, this has not helped by the fact that Caesars took a bunch of their bit, a bunch of their assets and sold them to a new company that they created and sold some other pieces of to some other folks and also on the public market. Um, clearly, uh, they're still in a lot of trouble. We've heard rumors of a possible prepackaged bankruptcy for the main company. Um, there was a story today or yesterday about them potentially creating a real estate investment trust to hold these assets. Um, but, you know, again, it's clear that they're they're in serious trouble. And they've been working hard to try and stave off the worst 
case scenario, but it's looking more and more like uh, there may be some kind of disruptive event. Chuck, you you are a student of the Gary Loveman <laughs> School of Financial Analysis. Um, <laughs> thoughts on what's going on at Caesars? Oh, man. You know, just when you think that this... Uh this uh, the shell game was confusing. <laughs> it becomes a you know a eight dimensional psychedelic excursion into how to split things up. Uh, quite quite fascinating. I remember on the show when I was in Zambia, uh, Dave mentioned the uh, seeing a new uh, a new website domain. Change your email address. Change change this in your address book for total rewards. Mm, I saw yeah. that too, exactly at the same time. And there's so much of this stuff, the way they're slicing it up and hiding it and, and, and trying to keep track of it. It is absolutely brilliant. This is like the greatest facade of, of hiding shit you've ever seen. This The Real Estate Investment Trust is just, is really is the, the icing on the cake and the cherry and I don't know another cake on top of it. The fact that they're gonna gonna saddle the debt with the CEOC operating company, which is the the company that owns the four, that holds the forty four of their properties and the total rewards network thing. They're gonna saddle that thing with the debt and then split the real estate into the investment trust. So the company CEOC that's holding the, the, the properties and, and the debt is going to pay rent to the real estate investment trust. So now what happens when they finally bankrupt CEOC? The investors who are holding the, the real estate investment trust are going to be left holding no income. Because they're going to bankrupt the company and have to renegotiate all over again and move the shells around. Pretty amazing. Sears is doing the same thing. They've been in all sorts of crazy trouble with with uh, their their majority owners just been pouring money and pouring money and pouring money into the company, and they just started doing a real estate investment trust as well to try and save themselves from the complete collapse. So this is this is getting pretty close to uh, we're going to see the blood. So. Dave, I would love to hear from you, especially being in Las Vegas, if you get a sense, uh, is there like any kind of a general vibe around the health of the company? And if so, if that's changed. So I'd love to hear that. But my next question also to you, why haven't we seen any asset sales, right? If they're so desperate to raise cash, there are definitely assets you could imagine um, that they could divest that would bring in some money, places like the Rio. Well, we haven't seen that yet. Why not? Well, don't know. A lot of it might be because of how the assets are entailed. You know what their what the what the um, mortgage covenants are and things like that. So I think that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen seen them sell yet. Also, you've got to say, well, how what kind of market is there for it? You've had the LVH on the market for I don't even know how many years, and. Westgate bought it, which probably you wouldn't say this would be your number, the number, the number one company you would think about to come into the gaming um, environment in Las Vegas. So you know, I don't know if those regional companies just don't want to come into Las Vegas, or if the price is too high, or what the story is. Why you haven't seen more properties being sold? Yeah. Do you think that? Assume that uh, 
they are forced to file for bankruptcy. Do you think that Gary Loveman will continue in the leadership role? Is that would that action be sort of a black mark on his record, or is is what's happening to the company just entirely because of bad luck, the timing of their LBO? Well, you know, I mean, look at how many Trump, how many times Trump's properties went into bankruptcy. You know, like three, four, I don't even know. I, I, legitimately, I don't even know. I know it's at least two, <laughs> possibly four. You know, over-under is three. I, you know, let's say three point, let's say 2.5 is the over-under. I don't know how I bet in that one. So I'm taking yeah, it over. Yeah, so it's, it's hard to say. You know, people, and again, like I've said before, other companies have been in probably worse straits and have gotten out. So maybe he's a Houdini or something and manages to somehow escape from this. You, I, you never can tell. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it was pretty amazing on the, on the earnings call and the financial reporting how they made a very, very clear all of the s- sections of the company at the beginning of the call. This does that. This does that. You know, it's been a while since I've listened to one since I went on my hiatus. It was before that, but uh, you could see there's just a total different tone in the company. Before it was like, hey, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing this. Now it's like, this is the shoebox that we're holding this. This is the shoebox we're holding that. You can't touch this. Basically, really being very clear about their strategy to their investors who are obviously listening to all this stuff of what and how the shell game is working. It seems like they're aware that everybody's watching and they know they're playing a little dangerous footsie. Right. Uh, so, ultimately, I mean, this has been an ongoing story for forever, it seems like. Um, does this do customers care about this? Right, they have tens of thousands of people cycling through their Las Vegas resorts every day. Um, it, ha, do customers care? Should they care? I think customers will care when they see their comps drying up, and if there is uh, some kind of uh, event that precipitates having their total reward balances squashed because of a bankruptcy. So they'll care then. Yeah. Dave, do you agree? Yeah. You know, I to the extent that customers are even aware that some of these properties are owned by Caesars Entertainment, I don't think right now most of them really care. No. And, you know, when it does affect them, they may. But, you know, it's, I was at a table games conference and we were talking about the evils of 6-5 Blackjack. Mm. And then I said, well, yeah, that time I was in the Cromwell when they opened and... Two tables, three, two, six, five, both $15 limit, and the 6-5 table was absolutely jamming. And the 3-2 table, I had a good 10-minute conversation with the dealer because there's nobody there. So right. you, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly can't say I know what drives casino customers all the time. Right. Well, it's interesting to see sort of the stuff that Caesars has been doing recently in terms of their projects, stuff like uh, the Link, which it's unclear how successful that's been overall at least the high roller and then something like the Cromwell, which it seems like at least the nightclub and you know the restaurant gets good reviews but the nightclub seems like it's been a big hit for them financially um if the all of the rumors are true about how much money they're making over there i mean they're they're raking it in and of course one nightclub is not going to save the entire company but it does seem to be a a bright spot and a much better use of that space than uh, the bills ever was yeah. 
Yeah, so it's funny. So that does seem to be paying off, and the 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 big investment in the supposed high end rooms. Although the rooms don't seem to be really driving much, it's all the the restaurant and the um, yeah nightclub. So the question is, why not just make the whole casino restaurants and nightclubs? <laughs> Have no it's rooms exact, at all. Exactly. Why does Las Vegas need rooms? It'd just be one giant <laughs> restaurant with a nightclub attached. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating idea, Dave. That's definitely why you get paid the big bucks. Well, yeah, I mean, for that property, considering it's in the middle of I don't know how many thousands of hotel rooms that the same company owns. That's what I'm saying. Like MGM, when they tear down the Harmon, they should just turn it into a giant restaurant nightclub complex. Like, no, nothing else. A giant, like, multi-level, multi-zone, crazy, insane uh, nightclub experience. The the Charles Monster nightclub experience. That sounds great. How about this? Walgreens nightclub. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Combine the strips, the two favorite things, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> two of them together, Walgreens and a nightclub. Starring like tonight, DJ Tylenol. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like free, you know, so you go there, you get your flu shot, and then you get bottle service. Maybe they'll have bottle, how about this, bottle service flu shots. And, and they have a, a yeah. morning after pill that's available <laughs> as you leave, as you go out the door. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. We, you know what? That is a great idea. We should, we should get some of our, our friends we know that are doing deals in, in the, with MGM and see if they're willing to propose this to the board. Um, okay. Let's see. I want to talk about SLS. Um, SLS is a property in Las Vegas, Nevada, United States, the Earth, um, that is born out of the uh, Sahara, a property we've talked about a lot on our show. Um, so since we spoke, there was a management shakeup at SLS amongst some other changes, which uh, are potentially interesting, but most notably Rob Osland, who was the former win guy that came over to (laughs) SLS to run the place. Um, he left six weeks, I think after the place opened seemed like fairly abruptly, um, he has gone over to work with his former boss, Andrew Pascal, at the uh, New Frontier site, where they're going to be building um, a resort there right across from Wynn. So, uh, you know, in some, in some sense, makes complete sense. I was, when Pascal announced his project, I basically was waiting for Oslin to come along. I, but what I didn't expect was it to happen so quickly. Um, I, I got the impression that uh, in the run-up to SLS that he was very proud of the product that that they were building there that he had worked very hard on it and wanted to see uh you know how how he could do as it's sort of his first big go round as as the guy in the in the top spot more or less um so i was surprised to see it happen so quickly not that it happened it seemed in my conversation with osland uh back in may um uh, he talked about andrew in incredibly favorable terms, it's clear that they have that he has a ton of respect for his former boss. So I wasn't surprised that they ended up working together, but it seemed like it happened very quickly. And when you sort of combine that with some of the other stuff we've heard about SLS, uh, they they've closed their buffet, um, which you know in and of itself, whatever, maybe not a big deal. But they've also tweaked a bunch of their other hours. And yes, granted, they just opened. They need to see how things are going to go, and tweaking hours and such is you know not all that notable. But um, the question, of course, is how are they doing? Are they surviving? Are they uh, thriving? I heard, again, just anecdotal, 
but a cab driver I follow on Twitter said that he waited two hours to pick up a fare at SLS the other night uh, on a weeknight. That's a bad sign. Two hours on a, a strip resort to get the, to move the cab line through is uh, that that seems like a bad one. Now, of course, again, it's just one guy, one night. Who knows? But um, Mikey, I think, said it best. Right? They sh- the solution to SLS's problems is have the place only be open Thursday through Sunday. <laughs> close up on Sunday night and uh, don't have it be open. But that's so that my very long winded opening there, um, you know, some sense of how SLS is doing. And are we surprised to see Oz and jump ship? And what does that mean? So Chuck, I'd love to start with you. Get any thoughts? Oh, Hunter, I completely agree with all of the points you made. Uh, I was, you know, I think we all figured when, when Andrew announced his partnership with uh, James Packer to redevelop the new frontier site, we knew at some point that uh, Rob Oslin was going to head over there. Complete surprise, though, that six weeks into opening, you know, that's nothing. Project you've worked two years on uh, to jump ship so absolutely quickly, to me, is frighteningly just not really a vote of confidence on his part, I think, to uh, to want to stick it out. Here's his baby. This is the... Uh, this is an opportunity where he helped in the conception and the building and the execution of this property and is a proud person who belongs to the creativity, the mind, and all the stuff that went into it. You would think that the artist in him, the creator, the the shepherd, would want to you know lead his flock at least to somewhere safe. You know, you'd feel that sense of responsibility no matter what to... Uh, to ensure that things are done, to fix the mistakes, to see how people actually use the product, to iterate, to make some changes, to learn, to grow, to fix it, and make it happen. The fact that he cut sh- cut the cord immediately, that shows he really did not have any kind of, you know, emotional, too deep of an emotional uh, attachment to this product. Not surprised he went to, to Andrew. The timing could just be everything here, but... Very, 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 very surprised. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I think it, it. It's just that it's that timing. It just seems, you know. I, of course, he knew that an announcement like this could would definitely be looked at negatively, right? Especially absent any other information to contradict that. Mm-hmm. Um, it would, it's can only be read as like a oh shit something's not working here. Um, and just the question is how much Dave, were you surprised by this move? A little bit surprised, but when I, when I was doing the tour, uh, with Rob and I said, Oh yeah, wow. How about this? Cause the, the announcement had just come down. He said, well, I've haven't really talked to him, to him about that. And I, yeah, I guess I'd love to hear more about that. So kind of was not telling me anything, which might tell uh, you something. I don't know. He was playing coy. Yeah. You know, that's totally possible. I, clearly when he's promoting the launch of the property that he's worked 18 months on, that's not the time or the place to talk up. Even if he's not going to go to it, his, you know, close friends, new, newer and bigger property that's going to open. So, you know, he's totally doing the right thing there. I honestly, I'm not that, I'm not surprised. And I could see if it was just on the eve of the opening, but he got them through the opening. And I think it's a kind of, it's a, once in a lifetime chance for him to to do this kind of project. So I'm not surprised that he's done it. 
you see, you think it's a once in a lifetime chance for him to work on this project with Andrew because yeah, he did yeah. Encore, which is a pretty much a once in a lifetime chance, and now he was actually the boss of SLS. He's not really going to be the boss of of this project, I don't think. He might no. not want to be the boss of, as boss huh. of the stage in his career. You know, he might just want to. It's like if uh, I don't know, we stopped doing Vegas Gang, and I was running some other podcast somewhere, and then. You said, hey, I'm starting up another podcast. You know, would I leave that podcast and come work with you? Yeah, you know, I probably would just because that's that's a really positive relationship and experience. So I, I totally understand it. I have a little tear right now. Yeah, there, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Death. Yeah. Death. Dave, I, again, sort of, you know, as a guy that's out about on the town every night, um, just wondering if you have any sense of how SLS is doing. Is, is, is it being talked about at all, I guess, is the first question. And, and if so, is it being talked about in a positive or a negative light? I don't think people are talking negative. I think that it, you know, it's just people think that the property hasn't really caught on yet. You know, yeah. I, it's, you know, at at uh, the main event of Vimp and the undercard, I believe I asked people multiple times what they thought of SLS, and the reaction was generally unenthusiastic. Not like yes, I loved it, or yes, I hated it. It was just kind of whatever. It's not that people are talking bad about it or talking great about it. They're not talking about it is really kind of the – and that's a problem. With a new property, hopefully to have this buzz, it doesn't. Maybe it yeah. does within within the code or their tribe or the network of, of uh, uh, SBE zombies, but yeah. generally, no. I mean, the question, of course, is like, how much runway do they have? Clearly, and I don't know what their financial structure is like, but if it is the 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 sort of line I keep hearing is that it's pretty empty on the weekdays, and then it does it's got some people there on the weekends. Um, you know that uh, at some point they need to make enough money to cover their expenses and hopefully return some profit to these people. The question is, how long? What what did they plan for? Did they plan for? Uh, you know, a couple of weeks of this and then it catching on? Did they plan for six months? Did they plan for a year or more? Um, you know, it, it may be that this is all part of the plan and and uh, they hoped it was maybe doing a little bit better, but they're in good, solid shape. Um, it's impossible to know without additional information, but it does seem like some of the early signals are, are at least they're not they're not showing that it's an overwhelming success, right? They may not be telling us that it's a failure, but um, it, they're not showing us that it's that it's blowing the doors off the place. Well, the financial structure, if I believe, if I can remember correctly, is uh, Stockbridge holds the uh, the notes of the real estate and the property itself. The funding, you know, is like two hundred fifty million of that came from J.P. Morgan, and then there was a matching amount, which is EB five. So half of that stuff, they don't really have anybody breathing on their neck. They have a disorganized group of individuals who are breathing on their neck. Now, they do have to pay some of that back for EB-5 people. Is that correct? Do you remember? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, they're making they this. Yeah. yeah, they do. yeah EB-5 exactly. people do have to be paid back. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's a little more lenient. Then well, J.P. Mean, Morgan, as a bulk investor, somebody who put in 250 they say, you guys aren't paying us. 
there's the definitely the the JP Morgans of the world and the large group of disorganized investors. Uh, but I mean, I, I'm even talking about more more pressingly them being able to make their payroll, right? I mean, if they literally aren't bringing in enough money to cover their expenses, their bank account is being deducted, is being debited every month, and uh, eventually it's going to get to zero, and that that's when uh, things get really hairy. Um, I walked the property, you know, it, it was, uh, I was not surprised because I had seen it in its uh, larval state, so um, it wasn't completely new to me, but it, they seem like they did a fairly nice job with a lot of the finished touches. Um, I'm very curious about some of the restaurants, um, so I would love to go back sometime and try some of the, a couple of the places, not every place. Um when I walked through, it was uh, granted it was a Friday morning, so it's not a super heavy time, but it was it was medium busy. I mean, not overflowing, but not uh, fire a cannonball through the place either. Hmm. Um, so you know, I, it's it's interesting. Definitely keep an eye on it. I, I I'll I'll be very interested to see how how well they do with the locals, right? I mean, that that's was part of their line. Uh, getting this thing off the ground was that they they were trying to spin a story that they were compelling to to local players and uh you know again anecdotally but i've heard a couple of folks say that they aren't super impressed with the offers that they're getting and some of the other uh, aspects of that as locals and so they may not yet be quite hitting that mark if that's a majority opinion um i'm curious any other comments on sls yeah chuck well yeah i kind of want to jump to the other side of this discussion and just toss it out. What do we know about the Packer-Pascal project? There's no name, right? There's no name. There's no clue. We know nothing about this. We know that we want Elaine Wynn to become a board member and create <laughs> create the most epic showdown in, in win versus win violence across the street from each other. Yeah, there's got to be a sushi place named Elaine's. <laughs> Uh, we don't know that much, right? They're in the early stages. That thing might not go, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that have to happen between now and when they start digging up dirt. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's not a sure thing. The uh, the uh, Trump property is not part of this. No, no. it's not. It's yeah. it's it's will remain as is, is my understanding. What I'm not clear about, though, is the sort of when Trump was built, there was the Trump Phase Two that obviously wasn't built, but they set aside land for it. Is that now dead? And is that land part of this? Like, was it reclaimed into the into this project? Or is that still uh, a portion of that set aside for future Trump expansion? There is a map on the uh, Crown Resort's latest earnings deal, which shows the whole... I'm looking for it right now, but uh, it shows the whole... Uh, shit, I can't find it, but... It shows the whole property, which is theirs and what isn't theirs. Mm, okay. But it seemed like the, the chunk in the far corner there was still – the stuff that wasn't developed was still tagged as not theirs. Okay. So there's the part with the Trump right there that's uh, you know across the street from uh, behind the fashion what? show. Yeah. Well, MGM has that office building right there too, right? I mean MGM Resorts has that – has like their design teams in that building and a bunch of other folks as well, which is which is right there as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Obviously, the Packer Crown Pascal Oslin conglomerate is super interesting. We all, I think, 
um, regard them as like serious players and worthy of our respect. Will they build a great place? I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see. They learned from you know the best guy in the business, and uh, Sam Nazarian, of course, and um, they uh, could be could do something amazing. But again. Building something new is risky, so I'll be really curious to see how it how it unfolds. How it here's does. here's the qu- the quote from uh, from Crown. It's thirty four point six acres is the site. They they say the development plans for the site, which will be unique, and the capital structure has not been finalized. Uh, Crown will have majority ownership, and the total Crown's total equity investment will be four hundred to six to five hundred million dollars. Total project budget one point six to one point nine. Okay. Yeah. So you know, significant. Not as uh, not in. It sounds like you know, Win Las Vegas is what two point seven to build the first phase. Yeah. So you know, still cr- cranked in a little bit higher than that. But yeah, of course, super curious to see what happens there. That um, that Steve Wynn uh, piece that I referenced earlier when I was talking about the golf course at the top of the show was interesting because he opines on the topic of these guys coming in and and some of the other competition that uh, like such as what's happening with uh, Resorts World as well. Um, you know, it's funny. I, it's uh, he basically if you read his, read his statements uh, literally, it's, he of course is praising these folk coming in and sounds excited. Uh, I, I I read a little bit more into it than that. It seemed like some competitive hackles were were getting up there a little bit, but uh, in in my opinion, that can only be a good thing if that is the case. Good. Um, that's all we got today, topic wise. Uh, but we would love to serenade you with bets <laughs> that are sure. Um, sure bets is our opportunity to recommend something to you, our audience, that we think you might be interested in. Um, we as Men about town are constantly coming into contact with all kinds of interesting products, services, and experiences that we want to share. Are you reading that off a card? No, I just made that up. Dude, that was really, really perfectly executed. <laughs> I'll have to go back and write it down no, <laughs> so I can no. say it again. I'm just I'll never, amazed. I'll never get it back. Um, Chuck, as our long-lost, yeah. fearless friend i i think we already know what it's going to be but i'll give you yeah. another opportunity yeah absolutely uh, you know i'll just uh, the album by the pink floyd is called the endless river uh, just check it out it's 50 minutes long it's worth it go buy the album they're rich they need the money <sighs> there you go i and, assume you can and and david gilmore is a win player oh. or tower suites mikey has spotted him oh ah, well, that's interest interesting <laughs> yeah. connection uh, I assume it's available uh, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Your local Woolworth and Woolco and yeah, Caldor. We had a Woolworth here in Santa Barbara when I was growing up. I re- I remember going there as a little kid and sitting at the lunch counter with my right mom. Now. Me too. I uh, must have been like four or five years old. Record um, it it's now a sporting goods store. Um, Dave. Do you have anything for us today? I do. I do. Very timely. So the past, we're in the midst of the Jeopardy Tournament of Champions. 
And this is a pretty good one. I mean, they're all good. First of all, the questions are incredibly difficult. If you ever want to feel really stupid, just watch the Tournament of Champions, because those questions are ridiculously hard, and the champions get them a lot. So now it's all built up. It's almost like a professional wrestling storyline where you've got this epic battle of these two epic champions, Arthur Chu, who was very controversial for kind of hunting around the board looking for the daily doubles, and Julia Collins, who won, I think, 20, 21 games in a row and made over $400,000. They're facing off with the dark horse, Ben Ingram, who had an extremely solid performance yesterday <laughs> on Wednesday. So we, I'm, I'm very excited to this. So it's a two-day <laughs> thing, Thursday and Friday. So check that out. You know, yeah. it's good. It's, you're going to see some really smart people who really know the game of Jeopardy. And it's kind of Arthur Chu's strategy versus Julia Collins' general knowledge and quickness in the buzzer. And then Ben is kind of the wild card. I am a Jeopardy fan. I don't watch it religiously by any means, but I am definitely a fan of like trivia in general. Um, I have not read, but I've heard that Ken Jennings' book about his Jeopardy experience is actually quite entertaining. And also, there was a gentleman by the name of Glenn Fleischman, who's a podcaster and former writer for many technology publications that was on the show uh, a couple of years ago, maybe. And he's talked extensively about what it was like to be on the show, um, just the whole process of going through the application and and then um, what it's actually like taping the show and how they tape it and all the logistics of it and, what it, and sort of the things you have to optimize for as a successful player. Uh, fascinating stuff if you are interested in that game. I'll see if I can dig up a link for yeah. his podcast where he talked about this in hmm. depth because it was very interesting to get that sort of behind-the-scenes uh, vibe. So I'll see if I can dig that up and put it in the show notes. Um, cool. Excellent. Uh, I am going to recommend a book. A It's a coffee table book, a book of pictures by... Uh, it's a book called Fearless Genius by Doug Menuez. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that last name, but uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, this guy is a photographer, photojournalist, who uh, was given sort of unprecedented access to a bunch of Silicon Valley companies in the late 80s, early 90s, um, notably Next, which was Steve Jobs' company after Apple, but also Netscape and Adobe and uh, a couple of others. Um, and it's really interesting to see these photos of these people building these companies and creating this stuff, especially if you know sort of the next story, you know, sort of flamed out, didn't achieve what it was supposed to achieve, but got bought by Apple and sort of reinvigorated the company and turned it into what it is today. Um, to see this sort of inside look uh, that you don't normally get to see, um, I'm going to actually have the book in front of me and there's one particular caption that I'm going to read because it's just – I wasn't going to do this, but I, now I just have to because it's so funny. There is a picture – of the aforementioned Mr. Jobs at a company picnic where they are playing... Let's see if I can find it before I ruin... Oh, yeah. So they are, like, playing, uh, like, they're at a company picnic or whatever. And the caption is the best. It says, Steve Jobs pretending to be human. And he's playing (laughs) with a beach ball. (laughs) Which is just... He looks so out of place, which is just, I think, super funny because uh, of the context. But, um, yeah, I would totally recommend this book if you are into technology stuff. It's... uh, some pretty, some pretty pictures, some interesting history. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's uh, worth checking out if you like that kind of thing. Yes. 
All right, that's it for today. Please don't forget to rate the show on iTunes. If you would like to leave a comment about this show, you can go to VegasGamePodcast.com and leave a comment. Or uh, like the like our friend Key Kevin at the beginning of the show, if you want to if you want to ask us a question, we're always happy to answer questions for you. Um, you can leave it there. You can also tweet us at VegasGang. That's for the show. Um, thank you guys for being here, Chuck. We missed you. It's great to have you back. Thanks, guys. Uh, let let me go around the table, and you guys can tell people where they can find you. Um, Chuck, we'll start with you today, since uh, you've been away. Uh, I know you've been very active over at Vegas Stripping lately. Where can people find you? <laughs> Thanks for answering my question. You can find me at VegasTripping.com. Yes, that's me. I'm there. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Uh, and would tell us, uh, we didn't mention the trippies, but they're sort of in the in-between state right now, right? Yes, the uh, the nomination phase is over. The votes have been counted. The nominations have been counted. The finalists have been tallied. And that stuff will go up, oh boy, I think uh, next week. going to yeah. post that up. I don't remember the exact day, but uh, going to f- finish up the software, put that up, and then folks are going to start, start voting. So... Excellent. Very much looking forward to it. Um, yes, I've, I've nominated with uh, much vigor. Um, <laughs> Dr. Dave Schwartz, where can people find you? Oh, all over the place, but mostly in my <laughs> office these days. At Down at the Center. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Do you encourage people to just drop in and say hello, or is that against the rules? Um, not usually, just because I'm usually in the middle of something, so probably it's better if they email and make an appointment. Because I may be doing something, I may be teaching or right. something else. So yeah, probably probably a good idea to make an appointment. Pulling a fair, re- fair request, fair yes. request. Uh, if people wanted to say follow you on Twitter, how would they do that? Oh, they could go to UNLV Gaming. I'm right Excellent. there. Excellent, excellent. Um, if you want to follow me, you can follow me at Hunter on Twitter. You can also go to VegasMate.com to learn about my iOS app for Las Vegas visitors. Um, and that's it. Thank you, guys. Have a great weekend.